This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. One of the keys to a great travel experience is having context. I found that if you know the history and the relevance of a place, an event, actually even a person, you get much more out of the encounter with them than if you come upon it or them cold with no context. Our Know Before You Go and Destination Deep Dive episodes are designed to give you up-to-date information and insider tips so that your travel experience is enriched, whether you're going to Venice for the 10th time or to Milan or Antarctica for the first time. And if there are places that you would like us to cover in this way, send us an email to passport at SiriusXM.com, and we'll cover it in an upcoming episode. This week, we're going to two experts to help us understand what is widely considered the world's preeminent art and antiques fair, the European Fine Art Foundation, or TEFAF, in Maastricht in the Netherlands. The quality of its paintings, jewelry, and decorative objects is so esteemed that it's known as the place where museums come to shop. And in true transparency, today's guests are also helping me to prepare for my first visit to Tefaf Maastricht, which I'll be making in just a few weeks. The fair was founded in 1988 by a small group of old masters dealers and antiques dealers who decided to create a fair by top dealers for top dealers as a nonprofit. Over the years, it's expanded to encompass 275 dealers from 20 countries. And while the flagship event still takes place every March in Maastricht, Since 2016, TEFAF New York has been held in May. One of the things that has set TEFAF apart from the start was the incredible vetting of objects. Every single item that a dealer presents is vetted by a team of curators and specialists, so buyers can be guaranteed of their provenance. That, and the fact that dealers traditionally save their very best treasures to exhibit at TEFAF, is also why it came to be known as the fair where museums come to build out their collections. It is also why top collectors come because they know if museums don't buy the priceless pieces, a private collector likely will. And then that painting or object may never be seen in public again. So of course, it's a place where major art transactions are made every year. But a common theme of exhibitors and fairgoers is that because of the intimate size of the city of Maastricht and the shared passion for connoisseurship, it's also an event that sparks education and friendship, where collectors and museum directors and curators rub shoulders but also have impromptu conversations that lead to shared scholarship and friendship. The fair is talked about a bit like an elite club or a sacred ritual, which is one of the reasons that I thought we should get some experts to let us in on this rarefied event and how to approach it. Coming up on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be speaking with the sixth generation art dealer and TAFAF board member, Laura Kugel, and World of Interiors editor, Mitch Owens. And stay tuned for this week's travel hack on getting the best exchange rate when traveling. We're also collecting questions for the next Ask Melissa. So please call with your questions and leave a message at 646-535-7297. Or send me a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel. Or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Follow Melissa on Instagram at Indigari Founder. Experience life without borders. You're listening to Passport Passport to to Everywhere. Everywhere. 
Here's your host, Melissa Biggs-Bradley. This week, we're talking about the prestigious art and antiques fair, Tefaf, in Maastricht, with board member and art dealer, Laura Kugel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's start, though, by hearing about your own family business. I know the business goes back to the 1700s. Did you always know that you wanted to go into the family business? I guess the image of the of the family dynasty that spans several centuries is always something that uh, is quite uh, potent. I love the family history. And now that I'm into the business, I think about this every day. But if you rewind 10 years, I had absolutely no intentions of joining. It was something rather abstract for me, the idea of working in an art gallery. And I had fled the nest, if you will, quite early on. I was living in, in the UK and, and doing something um, sort of unrelated. And it's at the occasions of several trips with my father and uncle, with whom I work today, that I had the chance to discover the depth and variety of what their standard workday was like. And that in a single day, we could go from a museum to an auction house to visiting a collector. And there was simply so much to learn after a couple of times I was hooked That's amazing. And you mentioned you're fascinated by the family history. So can you give us a little bit of a brief of the family history? How did the business get started? So the business in terms of art dealership got started, as you said, probably around the 1800s, I would say, in Russia. The family is originally from Minsk, which is today Belarusia, but this was uh, the Russian Empire at the time. And they were dealers in jewelry, silver, and what we called object of virtue. So small things. But at that time, there was no gallery, per se. That happened around the Russian Revolution, when my family fled from from Russia to France, and then again to Portugal during World War II, when they returned in the uh, mid-1950s. That's when my grandfather decided to move from being just a dealer meaning like dealing uh, privately, to setting up his own gallery. The gallery in itself is really about uh, 70 or 60 years old. And once you open a gallery that bears your own name, he was called Jacques, and the original name was Galerie Jacques Kugel, your personality becomes invested and part of, uh, of your work. And he certainly had an amazing taste. I was sadly never fortunate enough to meet him because he passed away in the 80s. I guess you can say that I'm fascinated with him because he's everywhere in all the objects we we buy still to this date. There is something of his taste that has endured time and again. That's amazing. And the gallery is now in an incredible building. I've been lucky enough to be in Galerie Kugel on the Seine. Can you talk about how you ended up in that space and, and what it means to you? It is like nothing else in terms of being able to visit antiques in an incredibly impressive setting in Paris. It's not just gravitas, but it's the incredible presence. It is an amazing building. It's, uh, it was built as a private house. It's called Hotel Colo, and Mr. Colo was the director of the Mint of Paris, which today is a museum a few hundred meters down the, the river. And our former gallery, in which we stayed for over 30 years, which was beautiful, we had become a little bit frustrated, I guess. I was not part of the business back then because the area had grown into no longer an art walk, but was um, high fashion. And even though the, the shop itself, which was uh, with a front window and, and quite large, was, uh, was beautiful, it became obvious at some point that perhaps we needed to, to change. 
And the story goes that neither my father or uncle were particularly keen on moving. And one day they sat together and asked each other, if you could move to anywhere in Paris, where would it be? Without any consultations, they both said, oh, you know, there is this one building. I've never been inside, but I walk past it almost every day. And it's where we are today with uh, incredible uh, luck. They managed after this to to get in touch with the owner and, and things actually moved along quite uh, quite beautifully. We call this building iconic because its facade is very different to those that are on either sides, which are of Hosmanian style, so much more recent. It's a facade that you can see in very many places of the center of Paris. Though there is no longer a shop front, it's a closed door. It can be a little intimidating. It has a lot of mystery to it. So it's a romantic place and it's much larger. We did the renovations when we opened in 2004 with uh, François-Joseph Graff, the esteemed decorator. And there were very few original features that survived. Uh, but still, you can see in some details of the moldings and the floorings that are still original, how beautiful it must have been in the mid-19th century. And of course, today, it's our perhaps our greatest asset, this building, because when people walk through the door, it's kind of like no other gallery. It's not exactly a museum. It's not exactly someone's home. It's kind of something in between. And the uh, relationships you can have with the objects when you walk in is something more intimate, I, I guess. We have a lot of visitors and food traffic and our friends and collectors from overseas, from America, mainly, I think very much enjoy visiting us there. Yeah, no, it's incredibly special. And I think the way you put it as a part museum, part private house, part gallery is exactly right. It isn't like anything else, but it's a little bit of all of those things. And so can you talk about what the gallery focuses on? I mean, I know you have pieces from the medieval period up to the empire period. You mentioned you started with jewelry. You obviously have a lot of beautiful antiques and furniture and carpets. But how would you describe, you know, the, your aesthetic or what, as you were saying, your grandfather Jacques taste? What's the common thread? I would say it's rather eclectic, that's for sure, and that we are generalists at the core. And that's both something that you can see in terms of the array of works we display, but it's also a way of viewing art, if you will, whereby personal tastes are perhaps put aside when it comes to buying something and it's no longer oh, I prefer paintings and not so much sculpture or something like this. We look at every object in the way it fits into its own style and the techniques. That's also one of the reasons why I learn so much on this job every day. The common thread did originate with my late grandfather in that my father and uncle, when their dad passed away, were too young to have trained with him for enough time to really understand what all this was about. So the only thing they had around them to uh, give them some clues were all the objects. And once they started taking over the, the business, with every th new thing they would buy, they would think together, would our father have bought this? And if the answer was yes, and they were in agreement, then they did continue with the purchase. And I suppose this is still the way we work today. Um, so even though it's as eclectic as can be. And sometimes it is a little bit hard to understand the commonality between everything. I do hope this aesthetic common thread is, uh, is noticeable a little bit. And for us, 
I guess the ultimate luxury as dealers is to be able to buy only works that we love. Um, I guess it's the dream of any art buyer and we are not collectors with what we show at the gallery, but still, you know, we are quite proud of, uh, of everything we've bought. And we sometimes say no to offers of beautiful, authentic works that might be absolutely fascinating for someone else, but perhaps we don't have this instant uh, love at first sight for it. Okay, so do you have a favorite piece? I mean, I can think back to my most recent visit to the gallery and there was a clock in the main room which you went into that was just extraordinary. It was one of the most beautiful objects I've ever seen and, and I think it was from the 1800s. But in some ways, if I were you, it'd be hard to have someone buy some of these things. Do you have a favorite? I don't have a favorite. I have a few works that really move me when I see them, which does not mean that I will necessarily be sad when we part with them. <laughs> I, On the other hand, I'm very excited and happy if they find a, a beautiful new home. The clock that you refer to, I absolutely love, and I can describe it a little bit further. It's over two meters tall. Um, it represents the three graces draped, so three beautiful women uh, life-size, pretty much, that support over their heads a huge globe, which has three dials, and it used to be a clock that no longer works, and it's made in gilt and patinated bronze, and it's simply stunning. You can look at it so closely, and every detail is you know, perfectly naturalistic. And because of its monumental size, there is few places in the gallery where it fits, so often it is the first monumental work that greets the visitor as they come in. And I like to start the visit with this because it is kind of illustrating how some art historical boundaries that people theoretically like to create hopefully disappear for a little while in places like our gallery, in places like Tefaf or some great museums around the world. And we deal a lot in what is called decorative arts, which is a sort of a bastardized typology that is simply pretty much not paintings nor sculpture and not jewels or silver. And for us represents you know, dozens of different specialties. And throughout history, some people perhaps have looked down to this decorative arts objects. But when you look at this clock, which would fit into this category, all of a sudden you are in front of an incredible feat of sculpture. And you understand that if you rewind 200 years, those artisans, they certainly were not looking down at one another when you look at such qualitative craftsmanship and all these boundaries vanishes and you're simply you know, in front of something executed at the best it could be. And that's quite moving, frankly. It's amazing. How would you describe the difference of the relationship between a collector and a gallery and them buying at auction? To me, there, there's a very different relationship that can happen when a collector or a client spends time with people who are dealing and, in your case, devoted generations toward really understanding and appreciating decorative objects as opposed to just buying something at an auction. I was fortunate enough to spend a little while working at Christie's in London at the beginning of, uh, of my career, which was a really formative experience. And I would say the main difference when you work in a gallery versus an auction house is the time frame. Auctions are historically put up sometimes extremely speedily, which is amazing, and the specialist works very hard, but they have no control in the time spent to study a piece necessarily. So for a great collection like that of Givenchy's that sells in a summer and probably took six or eight months for 
specialist to, to catalog every object. Sometimes that's just not enough to really go till the end of, of your research. And this is really what swayed me, particularly when joining the family business, this idea that you could have the relationship that you choose with those objects. And if you are not quite sure you are ready to propose something for sale to your clients, you can put it aside and keep it a year, 10 years or more if you want to. With time comes a lot of creativity also with what you can do. And I think that maybe by us moving a little bit slower than the auction business, instead of a weakness, this can be a strength and something that our clients certainly recognize. And on the other hand, of course, you were talking earlier about taste. Great auction houses have the most prestigious collections for sale, but you could hardly describe a Christie's object or a Sotheby's object, whereas you could say an object came from our gallery even without probably knowing the provenance. And that's the same for Tefa, for this great fair that I'm so excited that you're coming to, to visit in, in March in Maastricht. There might be 270 plus dealers there. You know that you are in the presence of the best quality across all those disciplines. And that's quite reassuring for collectors. Absolutely. So getting to Tefaf, you're on the board in addition to being an exhibitor for a long time. When did you join the board and how did that come about? Yes. So as you might know, TEFAF is an art fair that's almost like a syndicate. It's a foundation. It's overseen by a board of trustees that comprises mostly of exhibitors, but not, not exclusively. I was honored to join and the timing was rather challenging, I must confess, because I joined in June 2020. So both for the fair and for the exhibitors, it was a very challenging time because the way we used to do our business day to day was completely scattered as it was for, for most people. Um, but it was also a moment of amazing introspection for the fair in what we could offer to our clients, which are the dealers during this, uh, this time of need. And I think there was an incredible push forward. And really, we, we learned a lot from this time, but we are particularly excited to come back in March because this is our normal time slot. We had a first post-pandemic, if I may say, edition back in June, which was on a smaller scale. So this is really our big test. What have we learned from those three years, basically, since the pandemic began? And I think it will be a historic edition this year. And I'm very happy to be able to see from the inside all the work that goes into this. Amazing. So how would you describe, you've obviously been to lots of international art fairs. Maastricht is different. Tefaf is different, but particularly Tefaf Maastricht is really, in my mind, it has, it's almost spoken of in these reverential sort of hushed tones of almost being like a private club of the most esteemed collectors and curators go. And, and I certainly know many dealers who hold things for a long time just to have them on display there because it is at such a special level. But how would you describe it as an insider? Because I'm using all those terms as an outsider. <laughs> for me, the main point of TEFAF and what makes it stand apart in the art fair landscape is the multidisciplinarity. You can find so many different specialists in types of art you wouldn't even think of. So you're always in for a surprise. And like in any industries, it's quite magical when you are witnessing the kind of event that really sets the standard that people in the industry strive for or towards. And this is Tefaf in pre-20th century and modern art. 
without a shadow of a doubt. It's really fun whether you are an art buyer or an amateur or a curator or researcher. I think to come with some kind of idea in mind of what it is you're going to to see there, or maybe you have friends there who who are gallerists, and then discovering plenty of other things. And for us, because we are such um, eclectic in the types of objects we present, we really witness how much clients trust us and the fair when we are there, because we have people who collect specifically furniture or jewels who come on our booth, but they also always ask, what else do you have? What else can you show me? So I do hope that for every visitor, it is a place that opens your mind. And if you're willing, you can really discover things, amazing things. And I know you mentioned that Tefaf is a foundation. Um, can you talk about what that means? Because it goes beyond just running the fair and actually goes into conservation grants and, and other nonprofit elements, correct? Correct. So TEFAF as a foundation reinvests its money into the event every year in supporting our dealer community. Obviously, our clientele is our visitors, but we are mostly attached to saying we are a fair for dealers by dealers, if you will. We do work a lot with museums, and some people like to describe TEFAF as the place where museums come to shop, which is true, definitely. Uh, museums from the US, from all over Europe, from Asia come. And this is really part of the richness of this event because there is such an exchange of conversation, of ideas. And part of our work with museums, the foundation has this thing called the Museum Restoration Fund, which you might know about, by which every year, I think a couple or a few grants are put aside and museums can apply with different restoration projects they might have for a painting or for a glass vessel, for whatever it might be. And the foundation, alongside a very specific overseeing group, decides which museums gets the grant. And over the years, these are you know hundreds of thousands of euros that have been distributed. And it only reinforces for us the fact that this fair is really close to its cultural partners, close to its institutional partners. It's a marketplace. It's part of the art market, but it's something a little bit more niche in this sense. And we really, really appreciate this. Sometimes we also uh, show works from museums in specific booths on the fair. And uh, these close relationships really make us grow and work to everybody's benefit. That's fantastic. And I know that the vetting process at TEFAP is, is kind of legendary. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? And it's why, as you said, the clients know they can have so much trust in the objects. But can you explain what that involves? Absolutely. So for collectors and visitors alike, obviously, you know you are in the presence of artworks put for sale by some of the best galleries in the world. But even more than that, every single object at TEFAF has been vetted which means that prior to the fair opening and once all the booths are basically ready and everything is labeled and displayed correctly, us dealers are politely asked to leave the room for a day and a half. And then an incredibly talented and knowledgeable group of uh, museum curators and independent researchers and conservators uh, or restorers come into the fair and check every single work. They are divided in over 20 specialized uh, groups, depending on the types of artworks. So for example, jewelry and silver, like we were talking about earlier, or modern art or design. And they look at every object and make sure that what it says on the label is correct in their eyes, that no information is missing. And this extra 
guarantee of authenticity is really something that uh, boosts confidence and really tells every single client in the room that they can buy you know, completely freely at that event. But even more than that, it's great for us dealers because it then leads to fascinating conversations, sometimes heated because we don't always agree, but that's also the beauty of the work that we do. And all the people who are part of those vetting committees are also visitors of the fair and come back the next day. And sometimes they even uh, help us out. I can give you an example. One year, we had a beautiful painting on our booth, a Flemish early Renaissance painting by an anonymous hand, or so we thought. And just before the fair opened, uh, one of the members of the vetting committee came and said to me, okay, your painting is driving me crazy. We've been talking about it for 24 hours. We think we found who the painter is and we think it's this person. So they also sometimes you know, give you valuable information that we would have never found by ourselves. So it's it's quite magical. Amazing. That's just fantastic. And so why is the event held in Maastricht? It has been from the beginning, right? It has been from the beginning. Historically, it's uh, the coming together of two different fairs, I believe, one which uh, represented mainly paintings dealers and another one which was mainly antiques dealers. So from its origins, it's uh, it's an antiques fair, which has today grown into being uh, multidisciplinary and incorporating uh, mid-century design and modern art and contemporary art. And I don't exactly know how it came to be in Maastricht at the beginning, but you have to imagine that as difficult as it might be for overseas visitors to reach Maastricht, it's actually quite conveniently located because by virtue of being on the south point of the Netherlands, it borders several different countries. So you can easily come from Belgium or France or Germany and a little bit like Cologne or Basel, that makes it quite convenient for continental Europeans to, to visit. And the second main advantage of Maastricht versus big urban centers is that despite the fact that it's a beautiful historic town that I encourage you to visit if you, if you have time, there is not so many distractions, which means that if you come for Tefa, you are fully concentrated. And most of our clients spend three to four days and that's all they do is come to the fair from the opening time to the last minute possible. And when there is literally just one thing you're there to do and the other offerings are, are, are more limited, the amount of time and energy you spend there is incomparable. Makes a lot of sense. And so how has the fair evolved in recent years? I, I mean, I know you added the, I don't know if it's fair to call it a satellite, but you added New York. What are some of the other things or what are the ways that you feel that the fair has evolved or is going to continue to evolve? So the fair has evolved in geographic terms. Like you mentioned, now we do have a fair also in New York. The next one is in May. It's at the Armory, like many events in the city. Within the main fair, we do have a lot of evolutions in terms of strengthening all the disciplines. So we are always on the look and specifically board members like, like myself, to find new exhibitors, new people who really push the boundaries of what they do particularly well. And this year, one of the things that excites me the most and I'm looking forward to see is our enhanced uh, showcase department. So showcase is a small part of the fair, which is reserved to uh, new dealers, young dealers who, who, are, who are in activity, I think, for five years. I think that's the threshold. 
Um, and it's often multidisciplinary. So typically it was five or six participants who would, who would show. And this year, I think we've gone to 10 or 12. And for me, it's very exciting. Some of them are friends of mine, but some I've, I've never met to see who are those new faces who are bringing you know, new dynamisms in our respective fields. And I think they're going to have their own area in the fair. And I would encourage you when you visit to go pay them a little tour because it will be something quite fun to see. Fantastic. I definitely will. So that brings me to the question of, it's the first time I'm going. You've been many times. What advice do you give to first-time visitors in terms of how to approach this, this scale? Because I've been to the one in New York. That's only 90 dealers. This is 275 dealers. It's enormous. What do you suggest? It's true. It can be rather overwhelming. So my suggestion for you would be to have some sort of a bucket list, maybe just half a dozen uh, dealers that you mark with a little X on your on your map of the fair saying, okay, I know I want to go see them and then wander around and get lost on your way to those booths. Maastricht is a fair that is uh, parked by specialties, which is not the case of, of every fair and which is uh, it's an interesting debate as to whether or not that's the right way to, to display, but this is the way it is here. So all the paintings are in one place, all the design is in one place, which kind of helps you if you know where you want to go. And since I believe you are staying for more than one day, I would do this on the first day. And then the second day should be basically everything else you've seen in the alleys that you're like, ooh, I've never seen this. Um, but if I can give you one advice of what not to do, I think it's to see something you like and say, I'll go there later. Because uh, more often than not, I think visitors might get lost in this huge offering and perhaps miss some things that they wish they would have taken time to, to visit. But with the group you're going with, I'm sure there will be plenty of booths that will catch your eyes and probably you won't have time to view them all. I'm afraid we're going to be embarrassed by our riches, so to speak. And we'll not have quite enough time to do everything, but I'm super excited about it. And obviously, we're excited to come and visit you there. And for listeners who are intrigued, who may or may not be going to Maastricht, but when they're in Paris, what is the best way for them to make a visit to Gallery Kugel? The best way to make a visit at our gallery is to shoot us a message, whether it's by email or on Instagram. We prefer calling ourselves by appointment because it helps make sure that each visitor has the most amount of time and, and the best visit possible. If they cannot make an appointment before, they can just ring the bell and we'll always give them a visit. We're open on Monday to Friday, no weekends, but on any weekday, we're happy to welcome anyone. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. And I really look forward to seeing you in March. Thank you very much, Melissa. I look forward to meeting you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Coming up on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be speaking with Mitch Owens, American editor of World of Interiors and contributing editor at Architectural Digest. And stay tuned for this week's travel hack. We'll be talking about making the most of your money with the best exchange rates. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley. This week, we're talking about the prestigious art and antiques fair, Tefaf, in Maastricht, with World of Interiors editor, Mitch Owens. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to be talking about the fair and, and even more to be able to be going there with you very soon. Can we start by having you tell listeners a little bit about your background and expertise in the design world? Because you've been a journalist covering design, art, and architecture since the 1980s. Is that right? Yes. I started out um, in the 1980s 
uh, actually at a, um, a local magazine in Dallas, Fort Worth, and ended up finding myself much more fascinated by interior design, the objects, decorative arts, and especially the people who live with them and why they live with them. So I've been at Architectural Digest. I'm presently the American editor at the World of Interiors, and I've worked for the New York Times and several other publications. And we've been lucky to do some design trips before, and I'm super excited that we're heading to Tefaf Maastricht in a couple of weeks together. But this is not your first time to the fair. Can you give me a little bit of a tease, set the scene for people? Let's start with what the fair is like, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about Maastricht as well. Okay. The fair is in this enormous civic center called Mech that is not too terribly far from the historic downtown of Maastricht. And it's just this enormous sort of white and silver convention hall with multiple areas to it. The fair itself, the square footage, I think, is somewhere close to 300,000 square feet. That's the Mech building itself. The fair itself the 200-odd dealers cover about 150,000 square feet. It's just an extraordinary immersion into the fine and decorative arts. The only way I've ever been able to work it through in my head, and it's, it's really the only definition for it, is it's like the Metropolitan Museum of Art plus the Reich Museum, yet everything has a price tag. And it's just booth after booth after booth, some of them very straightforward, others are absolutely atmospheric in terms of their design and their presentation. So the booth itself, the setup, is just as alluring as the objects the dealer is offering. And I know that their fair is famous for its flowers as well and the crowd. Can you give a little bit of what the atmosphere is like and, and how the dress code is, the opening night? It used to be black tie. I don't know if it still is. Yeah, I don't know if it's still as black tie as well. Well, first the flowers, because as we know, the Dutch have such a hold or so representative of the European flower market. And what's lovely about Tesaf is whether it's the Maastricht original or whether it's satellites in the United States, that flowers are a huge aspect of the presentation of Tesaf Maastricht. And by that, I don't just mean arrangements on tables. There are great cascades of glass tubes hanging from the ceilings with flowers just sort of cascading out of those. There are huge installations of flowers when you walk in, like two or three story niches that tend to have just every possible flower in season that you can imagine in the Netherlands. So um, it's just astonishing what is available. It's sort of a hanging garden of Babylon where all of the aisles crisscross. There are more flowers cascading from the ceilings and also coming up from the floor um, on tables, in baskets. You're really walking through this virtual garden. As for the people, I remember the first time going to Maastricht and being aware that it's very dressy. It's rather traditional. There are lots of Chanel suits and men in suit and tie. It tends to be a very serious crowd. People who really do collect and in a very serious fashion. I remember being fascinated that at some point there were no more planes allowed into the Maastricht airport because the private jets had taken over all available space. It really is this extraordinary destination for people who 
are looking for the sorts of things that really make you understand that it is a completely different kind of fair. I mean, I've seen everything from extraordinary medieval faiths, like giant iron and wood faiths with multiple locks and, and keys and things to get in, to 17th century Madonnas, to extraordinary jewels. There's an amazing dealer who specializes only in antique clocks. It's just extraordinary what kind of clocks he has. It really is an immersion into the, the history and relevance and beauty of the decorative and fine arts. Because it is such a big fair, as you said. I mean, I think there's 275 dealers. How do you approach exploring a venue of this size? I think the easiest thing to do is get the, to the nearest champagne stand and get a glass. And the easiest way to do Maastricht, for me at least, for the general public, I mean, is to know what you're interested in at first. Payfast Maastricht is divided up into modern art, contemporary art, contemporary furniture, antiques, jewelry, Asian art, Pacific art. Go there. Go to the places that really interest you just off the top of the list. And then I think the best thing to do is just get lost. Just wander. It will be very easy to get lost unless you're being very strict with your map. But I think the lovely way that Tefat is laid out, it's incredibly thoughtfully choreographed. So that even within an area where you're expecting to find, let's say, traditional 18th century furniture, the way that the dealers have been arranged within that area, there's always something different. The next booth is not going to have the same traditionalism that the last booth had or the same modernism. So you're always being constantly surprised as you walk through the, the Met Convention Center. And it's funny because you describe that and Laura Kugel from the board of Tefaf said the same thing. Have your destinations in mind and then get lost on the way. And frankly, that's exactly the way I recommend people explore Paris or Venice. It's almost as exciting people watching as it is anything else. I remember turning the corner and coming face to face with Ira von Furstenberg, who was one of my favorite actresses from the 1960s, and sort of trailing her like a puppy dog. But it really is you have museum curators, uh, museum directors, really high-flying collectors, average people. I mean, Tefaf Maastricht attracts an enormous crowd, high and low, far and wide. There are restaurants within it. There are bars. There are the marvelous guys who serve the oysters at the Oyster Bar, which is where you often find me at noon. <laughs> it's a jolly fair. I know that it's a very serious fair, but there's a really sweet spot between distinguished and delight. I think that that's one of the things that helps set Maastricht apart. People know it's a very important fair. It's an old fair. It has extraordinary objects. But at the same time, the people who are attending it are so over the moon to see what is on offer. And just hearing people talk about what they're considering or talking with the dealers, that's a hugely important part of Tefaf for me is talking with all the dealers. And are there particular dealers that you're most excited about visiting? I'm always interested in seeing uh, Laura and Luca Berzio, who are great old friends of mine. And they are Italian dealers out of London who have really always extraordinary, special, rather astonishing objects of all periods, but often 17th and 18th century. Carol Thibault Pomerantz, who deals in antique papier peint wallpapers, largely French, 
she always has something extraordinary. The art dealer, Bob Habold. I feel like I learn something new every time I step into Bob Habold's booth. He's such an august dealer, but also someone who's incredibly fun and incredibly friendly and wants you to understand why that memento mori is such an important piece and what everything means. And then there's another Italian dealer out of Rome, whom I love, Alessandra de Castro, who always has extraordinary things. And, and her piece of advice for collectors has always stuck in my head. And that is, who cares who made it? Is it beautiful? That's great. That's a principle we should think of buying basically anything. So, Mitch, what's the town of Maastricht like? Well, it's a city. It's about 120 thousand people. There's a big metro area because it, it's right alongside Belgium. There's a really beautiful old historic core with cobblestone streets and the best kitchen supply shop I've ever been into opposite the city hall. You have to go there. You have to. I mean, it's my first stop. Really, really lovely restaurants. I, I mean, the Netherlands has such a concentration of terrific restaurants and more than a few are in Maastricht and the surrounding area. It's a very pretty city. There are, there are sort of 1960s and 70s um, apartment blocks. I love bicycling in Maastricht, going to the fair and back to the hotel, um, bicycling through one of the parks, city with lots of church spires. And almost everybody traveling to Maastricht is coming from outside of the region, many from regional countries just nearby, but some from much further like we are. What else do you suggest that one does if you go to Maastricht and you're staying for the fair, but also to see more for three or four nights? I think you have to get immersed in the architecture and the landscape of the region. One of the most exciting parts of the world to me is the Low Countries, the Netherlands, Belgium, that little pocket of rather extraordinary countries, because you will see architecture and design that you have never seen in your entire life. The Dutch version of 18th century French neoclassicism, which is completely different from what you think you're going to be seeing. There's the extraordinary medieval cityscape in Aachen and also in Antwerp, where the, the medieval cityscape is so astonishingly colorful and painted. It's like the whole city has been enameled and gilded. You also have Ghent nearby as well. Another one of these extraordinary architectural immersions. And then on the opposite side of that, visual and, and intellectual delight, you have the great designer Axel Vervoort's canal complex, uh, which is this revitalized and quite important aesthetic destination for those of a more modern mind that Axel has set up in these old, magnificent waterside warehouses and historic structures. And they're sparingly outfitted with the most extraordinary modern art, often Asian, um, extraordinary furniture, much of it very humble and very sculptural. And it's, it's almost mystical the way Axel has the whole canal collecting and shopping complex set up. It's an out-of-body experience. Oh, I'm so excited because I know we're visiting all of those places you mentioned, so it's, it's going to be amazing. Now, last question for you, Mitch. Is there any trend or design insight that you're hoping to learn about when we're at Tefaf? Or what is it that you are most looking forward to about our visit? Regarding Tefaf Maastricht, the one thing I'm always the most excited about is learning about something new that I didn't know about before. The wonderful thing about Tefaf is, and I believe it's in their official tagline, there's more than 7,000 years of furniture and objects and art. And I think it's hugely important 
to approach Tefaf with a cross-cultural collecting mind, not to go in search of specific things, but go to look at beautiful things across the range of history and imagine them living together, because so many of the dealers do that at Tefaf, combine the modern with the old, the ancient with the vintage, and teach you how to appreciate periods you were unaware of or schools of art that you never really thought you'd be interested in. And I think part of it has to do with the juxtaposition with other items. And I think that that is one thing that Tefaf does so magnificently is to teach you, teach me. I love learning about new materials, new objects, new periods I've not been too terribly aware of. I always feel like I'm filling in gaps in my knowledge. I'm so excited. I mean, I completely agree with you, Mitch. To me, the most amazing thing about going to any fair like this is that it is such an education for the eye. If you're open to it, once you let your eyes be educated by these incredible dealers, you just look at the world differently. So I'm so excited. I went there and been falling in love with a safe from the Middle Ages that's eight feet tall by eight feet wide is not something that would normally interest me. But as a sculptural object, it was extraordinary. And I remember taking a photograph of it and sending it to a friend of mine who is a modern art collector. And she thought it was one of the most extraordinary things she'd ever seen and didn't even know about them. Um, so I think that's a lovely thing about Tefaf is that constant sense of surprise. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, and I'm excited to see you on the ground in the Netherlands in March. I am too. Thank you very much, Melissa. This was a great chat. I'm looking forward to spending time with you at Tefaf. Thanks again. Bye. I want to thank our guest, Mitch Owens, American editor of World of Interiors and contributing editor at Architectural Digest. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking about how to make sure that you're getting the best exchange rate when you travel. Stay tuned. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Call us with your questions about travel. 646-535-7297. 646-535-7297. Travel Hacks with Melissa Biggs Bradley from, from Passport, Passport to, to Everywhere. Currency exchange is one of the things that confuses people when they're traveling. Exchange rates can be tricky. They vary slightly from day to day and even more drastically from ATM to ATM. So how do you make sure you're getting the best rate when you're traveling? First, look up the currency exchange rate before your departure. This will prevent you from falling for unfavorable exchange rates. I've heard way too many horror stories from travelers who got off of a plane, dazed from a long overnight flight with no idea of what the exchange rate was, who ended up accepting a horrible rate and realizing it way too late when they left the airport with a lot less cash than they should have. It's also wise to use a credit card with no foreign transaction fees. Many credit cards charge a 1% to 5% fee for purchases made outside of the U.S. This can really add up. So if possible, use one with no fee. Some examples include Bank of America's Premium Rewards and Travel Rewards cards, Citibank's Premier Advantage World Elite cards, Capital One's Venture One Rewards Card, and Chase Sapphire's Reserve, as well as the Platinum Card from American Express. I also always advise people to opt for ATMs inside the bank branches, not the ones at airports and train stations, which often try to take advantage of confused tourists. 
They're easy to find, but there's often quite a high quote-unquote convenience fee associated with this. Next, look out for your bank's international partner ATMs to avoid being charged fees by your bank and the ATM operator. I, for instance, always look for a Citibank because that's my home bank, and I know that I won't be charged an additional fee when I'm traveling abroad if I can find one of their ATMs. Another example is Bank of America partners with Barclays and Deutsche Bank, among others, so they won't have an additional fee. Some debit cards also waive currency exchange and ATM fees. Options include Schwab Bank High Yield Investor Checking Account, Capital One 360 Checking Account, and Citibank's Gold Card. But if you can't escape ATM fees, make one larger withdrawal instead of many smaller ones, since ATM fees are per transaction. Of course, you don't want to be left with extra cash in a foreign currency because you'll also lose money when you trade it back for U.S. dollars. So when given the option, it's always wise to pay for purchases in the local currency on your credit card. Don't let the ATM or the credit card company do the currency conversion for you. All of these small fees add up, and keeping these simple hacks in mind will help you save quite a bit of money that you can now use on delicious meals, tourist attractions, or a sentimental souvenir, or even just saving for a future adventure. Huge thank you to Mitch Owens and Laura Kugel for joining us today. To learn more about Tefaf and our guests, see the show notes for this episode. Coming up on the show, I'll be taking you to Antarctica, Charleston, and many other destinations. In the meantime, please call with your questions and leave a message at 646-535-7297 or send me a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at, at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I N D A G A R E. Send us your questions about travel, passport at SiriusXM.com or call us at 646 535 7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere. everywhere.